Uh, Open up to Matthew 12 if you've got your Bibles with you. It'd be helpful to have them before you this morning. Because we come to a passage which uh, for some has been a, a source of great fear. If not fear, then at least some consternation because it contains what's often referred to as the unforgivable sin. Raises some very real and important questions like what is the unforgivable sin? And maybe more importantly or more alarming for some, have I committed it? Scary thought, isn't it? But to answer those questions, as always, we need to first consider the context. In recent chapters, the opposition against Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, it's been on the rise, not just in whispers in the back room, but they're opposing, um, confronting Jesus and they're conspiring, not just opposing him, but conspiring to destroy him. We read that in verse 14 of chapter 12. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him. How to destroy Jesus. And yet straight after that, Matthew makes it known to us as his readers that Jesus is in fact the Lord's anointed. He's just quoted Isaiah for us, verses 18 to 21. This Jesus is the Lord's chosen servant. One, he has chosen his beloved son. He's anointed him with a spirit. And through him, he's going to bring justice to the nations. The gospel, uh, the Gentiles are going to hear the gospel and put their hope in him. That's the backdrop for this morning's passage. As we pick it up in verse 22. Matthew's just told us that Jesus is the Lord's anointed. He's the Messiah they've been waiting for. And now the people are actually beginning to see it as well. Can they see, can, they, can this be, they ask, the son of David? Verse 23, they come to that conclusion or at least to that question because Jesus has just liberated a man oppressed by a demon such that he was blind and mute and now he can see and speak and they see what Jesus has done right before their very eyes and they ask the question, can this be the son of David? Some of them at least were expecting not just a military messiah who'd come and lead a political leader and get rid of Roman oppression They were connecting the dots of the spiritual liberation promised in the Old Testament that would come with Messiah. Just as Matthew did in the previous passage, linking these words of Isaiah to Jesus, the people here are saying, hang on, what we're seeing here, Jesus casting out demons, the blind can see, the lame can walk, the mute can speak. We've heard about this. The prophets spoke about this. Jesus is setting the captives free. Could this be the son of David? The Pharisees, on the other hand, verse 24, they think a very different thing. They come to a very different conclusion. They see Jesus' power and authority over demons and they put it down to Jesus himself working on behalf of Beelzebul, the prince of demons, another name for Satan. Can this be the son of David? No way, he's the son of the the evil one. Uh, Some of you remember Dominic Smart, Scottish pastor who visited us once or twice for a church family camp, now with the Lord in glory. He once spoke on this passage saying, this passage is less about an unforgivable sin and more about power. And I think he's on the right, um, right train there. Is Jesus doing what he is doing here, healing and casting out demons by the power of God or by the power of Satan? That's what's up for grabs. That's what's in contention here. And behind that question, the question of power, really is who is Jesus? Where does he come from? Who's behind this man? God 
or Satan? It's a question still asked today, isn't it? Who is Jesus? C.S. Lewis put it, liar, lunatic or Lord? Which one is he? Was he simply a good teacher and nothing more? Had some good things to say, but that's about it. Getting a bit old-fashioned now and not really relevant. The Pharisees weren't even that kind. No, he's not the Lord's chosen servant. He's a servant of Satan, they were thinking. He certainly has power and authority to do things that they haven't seen before. But what power is it? By what power? By whose power is he doing them? Is he the son of David, the Lord's Messiah? Or is he working with Beelzebub, the prince of demons? And the answer to that question should really determine both their and our response to everything Jesus says and does, shouldn't it? If he is who he says he is, we better listen, hear what he says and obey what he says. And if he's not, then we can disregard it and actually should be careful about what he says and does. The answer to that question, who is Jesus, is he from God or from Satan, will really determine whether we do repent and believe when we hear the gospel of the kingdom that he preaches or not. The Pharisees get one thing right. There are only two kingdoms. Unlike many today who simply want to ignore Jesus and get on with life and not even think about any spiritual realm or kingdom of God, the Pharisees did understand something crucial here and it's worth reminding ourselves. There is no neutral territory. You might be ambivalent, but that doesn't mean you're sitting on the fence. You're in one paddock or the other. Ambivalence is not an option. Jesus makes that clear later on. We'll hear it again. But verse 30, if you're not with me, you're against me. Whoever is not against me, who is not with me, is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. There's no in-between. There's the kingdom of God, and there's the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of evil, of darkness. And when we speak of, speak of kingdoms, we're not just talking about territory and land. We're speaking about a whole reign and a realm where there is a Lord who reigns in authority and power over all that's in that kingdom. And the Pharisees think Jesus has come in the name of the kingdom of darkness. But the people are starting to think, is this the one who's actually going to come and bring the kingdom of God to us? Maybe they're just being sceptics. I know when I see certain things happening, big, wonderful, marvellous, miraculous things, I I can be a bit of a natural sceptic and say, oh, I just wonder what's happening there. And I think if we're honest, many of us are like that as well. As much as we might love it, and rejoice if someone amongst us needing healing was healed. I'm sure in the back of at least some of our minds would be, "Mm, was that God or was that something else at work? So let's not be too judgmental yet with the Pharisees. But Jesus is making something clear. You're either with me or you're against me. It seems to me the Pharisees don't actually believe God has the power to cast out demons at all. Maybe because they themselves haven't been able to exercise these demons, although Jesus sort of alludes to the fact that it is being the case, they have been. But when they see Jesus casting out this demon, they, they, he must be doing it by some power of evil, not by the power of God. I actually question whether they believe God has the power to do it, whether anyone on earth has the power to do this, what they see Jesus doing. They definitely don't want to believe Jesus has come from God and is doing this. And if that's the case, just imagine how sad would it be to be involved in a group, a religious group, whose very leaders and teachers didn't believe that the God they're following is powerful enough to defeat evil. 
that you're already in the losing side. That'd be a pretty sad reality, wouldn't it? Defeated before you've even started. Do we believe that our God and Saviour really is the King of kings and Lord of lords? That he's sovereign over everything? Everything. And if we do, and I hope we do, then what joy and comfort, what relief that should be for us. Whether we're healed or not, not every blind and mute man was healed. Whether we're liberated from physical suffering yet or not, but trusting and knowing that God is the God of light and Jesus reigns in the kingdom of light and no other power can overcome it. That's a wonderful way to live life. The sure hope and faith that God is God and that he is good and that he's powerful. That might raise a whole lot of other questions when it comes to suffering and evil in the world. But at least we have the sure foundation that God is God and he is good upon which to ask those questions. The foundation of his steadfast love, his faithfulness and the promises that there will one be a day where there's no suffering, no tears, no evil. One day he will wipe away every tear. And all pain and mourning will come to an end. That's the God we trust in. So the Pharisees had it right on one side. There are only two kingdoms, two great realms of power, but there's one, the kingdom of light, and the kingdom of darkness cannot overcome it. Where they have it wrong is that they don't think Jesus is coming from that kingdom of light. They don't think he has the power, or God has the power to cast out demons. They think he's doing it by the power of Satan. When in fact, as Jesus explains in this passage, what they've just seen taking place is God himself. God himself coming into the strong man's house, into a fiefdom within his kingdom, and actually binding the strong man and plundering his goods. That's what they've just seen taking place before their very eyes. They've delivered, he, Jesus has come and he's delivered this man from the kingdom of darkness and transferred him into the kingdom of light. Which in fact is a real life illustration of what's happened to you and me. If you're a Christian believer. When a person comes to faith, as we might say, genuinely converted, new life in Christ, born again, we haven't just made a decision to follow Jesus. We haven't just given our life to Christ. He has come to us And he's actually bound the strong man who had control over us and plundered us from that kingdom and taken us into the very kingdom of his beloved son. He's transferred us out of darkness into his marvellous light. That's what's happened to you and me. We've been delivered and set free and adopted as children of God and now belong to a whole different kingdom. No longer slaves to sin and Satan but now servants of God and slaves to righteousness and children of a loving, faithful Father. As Paul tells us in Colossians, for every one of us who believe through the redemption and forgiveness of sins that have been paid and won for us at the cross, Jesus has delivered us, cancelled any debt against us, delivered us from a kingdom of darkness and has transferred us, plonked us, placed us, secured us in the kingdom of his beloved Son. 
If you're a person of faith, that's what's happened to you, whether you know it or not, whether you experienced it like this man or not. So give thanks to God for that. And that's actually a greater work, isn't it, than being healed from being blind or mute or any other sickness and disease. As good as those things are, being taken out of the kingdom of darkness and put into the kingdom of light forever, that's the far greater work and the far greater joy and hope that we have. Back to our passage. Jesus has cast out this demon, liberated this man. He says, by the power of the Spirit of God, and the Pharisees are accusing him of doing it by the power of Satan. To which Jesus, knowing their thoughts, we're told, verse 25, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, and he starts poking holes in their argument, in their conclusion. So many holes that, well, they couldn't even use their argument for a fishing net anymore. Come on, guys, he says. This is just common sense. If You know how strategy works on the military ground. If a kingdom's divided against itself, it cannot stand. You have a faction rising up, it's going to undermine its own power and it will destroy itself from within. If what you are suggesting is true, that I come here and I cast out demons by the power of a demon, then that whole kingdom has to be destroyed. As in, it just cannot stand. It's going to be divided, working towards its own demise. So that's how he pokes the holes in their argument. But he doesn't stop there. Plain logic, if that's not enough, he throws the argument back to their own court. Your own sons, your disciples, your own people, your children even, they cast out demons. By what power are they doing that? If you think I'm doing it by the power of Satan, who are they doing it by? They will be your judges. Go and ask them, because you're actually pointing the finger to them at the same time as you're pointing it to me. In the end, they will prove who is right and who is wrong here. If not now, it will surely be proved later. So he stated the principle, kingdom divided against itself will not stand. He provides an example, a very unbiased one, one in their court, their own sons, to demonstrate the truth. If a demon can only be defeated by the power of Beelzebul, then yet your own people are using that power. And they're not going to accept that. And so there must be another explanation, another possibility, another solution to this problem. And Jesus explains to them the only other conclusion, whether they're willing to accept it or not. Verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If you hadn't seen it already, we can begin to understand why Dominic Smart thought this was all about power. Is this by the Prince of Demons? Or is this by the power of the Spirit of God? Which kingdom is coming in this scene? If it's not by the power of Beelzebul, and I've just shown you why that can't be the case, then there must be another kingdom and another power more greater than the kingdom of Satan, which has come and actually removed this demon. And that kingdom is the kingdom of God. And that power is the spirit of God. Now it's been five weeks since we've been in Matthew's gospel. So we might not easily recall it. But cast your minds back a few verses to verse 18. Where Matthew says, This is to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Verse 18. Behold, from Isaiah, My servant whom I have chosen, 
my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He is Jesus. He's a servant of the Lord upon whom God has put his spirit. The one who won't break, remember, a bruised reed or snuff out that burning wick. And here he is powerfully casting out demons. He's both caring and careful, but he's also mighty and powerful to save. He's strong against those who oppose him, against those who seek to destroy him, against those who are holding the captives. He will come and he will liberate them. If it is by the Spirit of God, God's Spirit has been put upon him, then the kingdom of God has come. And he explains to them in what Mark and his gospel really describes as one of Jesus' first parables. He says, you can't come in and take over someone's house. You can't go and rob someone's house unless you first bind the owner of that house, the strong man. Once he's bound, once he's contained, then you can do as you please. You can take what you want. He's not encouraging doing that, by the way. He's giving an example. He's actually telling us what he's just been doing. This is not some coup taking place, some upstart in Satan's kingdom coming and trying to take the top seat out of Satan's hands. Now, this is direct opposition. This is a frontal assault. Jesus is coming into the strong man's house and he is binding him, overpowering the strong man and plundering his goods, taking this man and bringing him into the kingdom of light. Again, there's only two kingdoms. No no man's land in between. You're with Jesus or you're against him. If you're not with me, you're against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. We either join with Jesus in the gathering of the sheep without a shepherd, rescuing, protecting, loving, caring, sustaining, or we're scaring them and scattering them on side with the evil one and so in danger of judgment and defeat. And it's only now, verse 31, therefore, Jesus says, it's only now that he comes to blasphemy blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's only now that we are ready to consider the matter of this unforgivable sin. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, before we look at what isn't forgiven, let's not do what Adam and Eve did and ignore the great provision of God by focusing on the one prohibition. Young ones are in today, and whether we're young or old, I don't know about you, but I always heard the no much louder than the yes from mum and dad. You ever pick that up? You always hear the thou shalt not or don't do that much louder and clearer than the you're free to do this or go and do that. Adam and Eve, God said to them, you may surely eat from every tree in the garden. Where did the evil one put their focus? On the one tree they couldn't eat. What's Jesus saying here? Did you hear it? In verse 31? Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Did you hear that when we read it or did you just hear the next bit? Except this one. 
Forgiveness is possible. Forgiveness is there on the table waiting to be received for all kinds of sin. Every sin. Any sin you've committed can be forgiven. Even if you speak a word against the Son of Man, there's forgiveness for you. P.D. Forsyth says, don't say God is ready to forgive. Say God has forgiven. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. That's amazing grace, isn't it? Like it's unbelievable. Except you only receive it by faith, so you better believe it. But the title I've given this sermon is Unforgivable Sin, Unbelievable Grace. Because we tend to focus on one, but actually there's a huge, amazing, abounding grace here, isn't there? Every sin will be forgiven. This is the, the loving kindness of God that's meant to lead us to repentance and faith. The very message of the gospel of the kingdom. Repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If we had time this morning, we could open up and look at Peter. Remember Peter, foot and mouth? Peter, so keen, so determined, so foolish, denying his Lord three times. No, I won't. I'd never do that. I'd die for you. I don't know him. Get away from me. I don't even know the man. Three times. And yet he's forgiven. Not just that, he's restored and given leadership over the brothers. Write New Testament letters. Every sin will be forgiven. Peter's example should at least be of some help in understanding why it is that even the blasphemy against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but not the one against the Spirit. Forgiveness is available for all kinds of sin, except one, blasphemy against the Spirit. Now, we can speculate and argue all day with what it means to blaspheme or speak against the Spirit. My daughter thinks it's to have tomato sauce from the shop on the table after enjoying mum's homemade sauce all her life. There's just no comparison. That's the unforgivable sin. No, not really. But if you've had the, if you've had the two, you know the difference. How is it the Spirit's already been mentioned here in this passage? In my Bible, it's in the same red print. Jesus has been speaking all the way through. If it is by the power of the Spirit, verse 28, by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And soon after that, you're either for me, with me, or against me, that Jesus says, therefore, every sin will be forgiven except this, blasphemy against the Spirit. It's this impossibility of being neutral, And the fact that Jesus has come in the power of the Spirit and liberated this man that brings him to say, therefore, every sin will be forgiven except the sin against the Holy Spirit. So what is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Well, the Pharisees have just accused Jesus of doing a work, in this case, casting out a demon, liberating him, enabling him to speak and see. And they've said, well, that's done by the power of the prince of demons. When actually he's done it how? By the power of the Spirit of God. They have just attributed the work of the Spirit to Satan. And they therefore despised and denied the work of God. 
That's what it means to speak against or blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. To say, here's a work of God, but I don't believe it's a work of God. I think it's a work of evil. To reject the grace of God in Jesus Christ. To deny the work of God and call it the work of the devil. We heard from Isaiah 49 in our readings. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant? Can they be plundered, rescued? Even the captives, yes, says the Lord, of the mighty will be taken and the prey of the tyrant will be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. That's what Jesus is doing here and the people are putting two and two together. Can this be the son of David? But earlier in Isaiah, back in chapter 5, we read this. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That's what the Pharisees are doing here. They're calling good evil and evil good. And Isaiah says, woe to them. And Jesus says, woe to them. There's no forgiveness if you see the work of God and say that's the work of the evil one. There's two other places in the New Testament which speak of, the unforgiv- of an unforgivable sin, the impossibility of being restored to repentance. One comes in Hebrews 6, the other in 1 John 5. I don't have time this morning to look at them in detail, but when you consider them together with what's here in Matthew... Rather than trying to identify this unforgivable sin with what we might think of big sins and murder, adultery, theft, whatever it might be, reading those passages and what Jesus says here in Matthew, it's more accurate and appropriate. I think this is what Jesus is saying. is The unforgivable sin is the persistent refusal to accept Jesus as both Lord and Christ, to accept him, accept him as God, to persistently rebel against the notion that Jesus is the Son of God who comes with the power of the Spirit. Let me put it another way. Let me put a positive side on it, rather than the unforgivable sin. Peter declares this in Acts 4. There is salvation in no one else. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And friends, we must be saved from sin, from Satan, from the wrath of God. And it's only by Jesus, only that name. So refuse to accept him as coming from God, as your salvation. It's unforgivable. Not because God's unable to forgive sin, but because you're rejecting the very offer of salvation and forgiveness that comes by God through Jesus Christ. And therefore... If you're a Christian believer here this morning and you've worried or concerned yourself or you fear that one day you may have committed the unforgivable sin, then I want you to take heart and I want you to be encouraged. I don't believe a Christian believer can commit the unforgivable sin. We have been filled with the Holy Spirit. We've received Jesus Christ as Lord. He has done a work in us and we've said, thank you, Lord. Thank you, God, for that work. We haven't said, oh, that was a work of the evil one. We've accepted Christ as Lord. It's at the very heart of our faith. This unforgivable sin is not something you do as a once-off and you're lost forever. 
It's a persistent rebellion. Leon Morris suggests what Jesus is speaking of here is being hostile to what is good, emphatically and unrelentingly calling good evil and evil good. That's what puts a person in a state which prevents forgiveness. As Christian believers, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. We can quench the Holy Spirit. But as Christian believers, it's, it's mutually exclusive to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. We do need to be careful when we see works of God taking place. Like I said, you might be a little sceptical. We do need to discern the Spirit, test the spirits, see what's happening. Because the evil one does come disguised as an angel of light. But we need to be very careful. Let's not, let's not be too quick to judge and say that's not a work of God. Because then we're starting to get into dodgy territory here with the Pharisees. Morris goes on to say, it's not that God refuses to forgive a person in this state, but it's that the person who sees good as evil and evil as good is quite unable to repent and therefore come humbly to God for forgiveness. And there is no way to forgiveness other than by the path of repentance and faith. And so just briefly, we come to the last... My Bible's got a big, bold heading, so we think it's a new section about trees and fruit. And I think here Jesus is actually calling out the inconsistency of the Pharisees. When Jesus says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, I don't think he's telling us to go plant a tree and make sure it's a good tree. Make, turn a bad tree into a good tree. He's not telling us about horticulture. He's saying to the Pharisees, Here's a good work. You've just seen a good fruit. Man's been liberated. He's been healed. And you're saying it comes from a bad tree. It doesn't work that way. Good trees produce good fruit. Bad trees produce bad fruit. So whatever you're going to argue, make sure it's consistent. If you see a good work, then you need to be thinking this is a good tree. If you see a bad work, then probably not a good tree. Surely the good you've just witnessed comes from a good tree. And he makes it clear to them where he thinks their roots get their nourishment from. You brood of vipers. Might sound like a simple taunt or a you know, playground name-calling exercise, but it's not. A brood is a clutch of eggs, isn't it? It's something that a hatch, the result of a clutch of eggs, they just hatch. It's not just chooks that have eggs. Serpents have eggs. Vipers lay eggs. That ancient serpent, the devil. So what's Jesus doing when he calls them a brood of vipers? Which kingdom are you from? He's suggesting. It's a bit like in John where he says, you're not children of Abraham. You're children of your father, the devil. You're bad trees. And you're going to produce bad fruit. And the truth of the matter is actually, until the Spirit of God, until Christ comes upon us, in the power of the Spirit of God. Each of us are bad trees who only produce bad fruit. But friends, the Spirit of God has come upon us. God's the only one who can turn a bad tree into a good tree so that we might produce good fruit. And that's what he does. That's what's happened to us. The kingdom of God has come upon you. 
which then should help us in our prayers, shouldn't it? Prayers of thanksgiving that God has delivered us from a kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his light. But also, and we often do, pray for our lost loved ones, friends and family who don't know the Lord. And this passage and what Jesus is teaching here tells us something of the powers at work for those who do not believe. Yes, there's their own stubborn hearts, refusal to believe, but there's also a strong man who binds them and doesn't want to let them go. And so in our prayers we can pray, Lord, would you come and bind the strong man and plunder his goods and take our friend and our family member out of that kingdom and bring them into your kingdom. A lot of factors at work. Later on, we even in New Testament, we read God himself puts a delusion in their hearts and minds as well because of their unbelief. So yes, we've got to pray that they would believe, but we're going to also pray that the Lord would come and bind the strong man and liberate those who are under his power. That the kingdom of God, which is more powerful and has overcome the evil one, more gracious, would come and set them free. Let's do that now and gather together in prayer. Father God, we first of all want to thank you that you have delivered us, you've rescued us from slavery to sin, from the bondage of the evil one, and you have set us free and transferred us. You've brought us into your own kingdom, into your own family, Lord, that we would call you Father. Grant to us, Father, wisdom and discernment to know and see the works that are yours and call them what they are and rejoice in them and also to see the works of evil and, Father, to steer clear from them, to see them for what they are and pray to you that those works would bear no fruit but the works of Christ would bear much fruit. Father, we do pray for those we know and love and often pray for that they might come to faith. Father, we pray you would break through strong and hard hearts, stubborn hearts. But we also pray, Father, where those hearts are bound by the evil one, that you would bind the strong man and plunder his goods and set those captives free. For that is what they are. And may we rejoice today and always that we have a Lord and Saviour in Jesus Christ who reigns over all. And so we can have confidence. We can have the sure hope of glory and eternal life and victory even in this age, even in this day, as as Jesus reigns, Lord of all. In his name we pray. Amen.